Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us in the house as well as online as we continue in our Mark series. I want to ask you what I got over here uh, as I pull them out, try to figure it out. I don't think it'll take too long. You got some dice here, and they're made out of foam, okay, so they could help you uh, de-stress a little bit, right? Uh, but also so they don't clank across the stage when I roll them. What do you think of when you see a pair of dice? You know, you think of a lot of things, but, but what are some of the things you think of? And I often think of games, and, and most specifically, board games. How many of you, how many of you, you love board games? I mean, you are, let's get some board games going. It's snowing, there's board games. How many of you feel completely trapped and are terrified of board games? We got some people now, like, how long is this gonna be, right? I mean, and there's board games that go on for hours. There's board games that go on for a little bit. And we all have our favorite board games and they often begin with, who's gonna go first? Who's gonna go first? Okay, well, I roll and um, I've got uh, three. Okay, well, you gotta beat three to go for your turn and then it's one, now the other person goes. And everything is based on the cast of the die, or the thrill of the chance. And you move throughout the game boards. Now, now I don't know what were some of your favorite games, or what are some of your favorite games now, but I remember growing up, I, I, loved, I loved a bunch of different games, especially. But um, did anybody grow up enjoying playing this game right here? How many of you know this game right here, Life, huh? Yeah, we've got some people, I see some hands. I mean, when you, in the game of life, you know, you don't have a pair of dice, but you have a spinner, and, and you spin it, and you go through, and, and I just love the three-dimensional elements of the board game, and how you would go up ramps and down this, but you get a car, right? You get a, you get a husband or a wife, you start filling the car up with kids, you go to university, you make good decisions, you make bad decisions. Sometimes life is good to you, sometimes it's bad, but the goal of the game of life is to finish kind of like this tycoon, I mean, like millionaire, and whoever's got the most money wins. I mean, after all, isn't that the American dream? I mean, the game of life? Isn't that what it is? But sometimes things don't always go that way. In fact, sometimes life can be very difficult, and there's ups and downs through it. And did you know that that is actually the story behind the first game of life. See, the game of life you're looking at behind the screen came out around 1960, but in 1861, the game was birthed by a man named Milton Bradley after his lithogram business began to struggle. Why did it struggle? Well, he was making money of an off and rising politician named Abraham Lincoln. Now this Abraham Lincoln on a lithograph was selling quite well. If you don't know what that is, that's printing on a material like stone or whatever that could be used as a memorial. And he printed hundreds and hundreds of these and was doing quite well in business. But something happened as this Abraham Lincoln began to run for office, there were people who suggested to him that his face was too skinny and narrow and he needed a beard to get elected. And thus all the prints of this lithogram business by Milton Bradley were deemed relics. I bet if you had one now, you'd be doing pretty well for yourself. But they were deemed useless for that's no longer the image he bore. And thus during that season, of his business struggling, he turned to another idea he had that he labeled the checkered game of life. The words checkered in there 
with the idea of, hey, life has its ups and its downs. And its rules were a little bit different and its gameplay was a little different than the version you may know. In fact, some of it was kind of dark. There were things that would happen to you that would lead to despair. For society at the time of the deliverance of the game in 1861 demanded all games have a moral emphasis behind it. And so on that board, there was decisions you would make that would lead to poverty, ruin, even death, even suicide was part of the game. And so this original game had its real checkered points to it. And it was all birthed in a very tough season of life for Milton Bradley, but it became one of his best sellers of all time. You see, the game as we know it now is a game of growing wealth, possessions, and finishing at the highest level. The original game, the checkered game of life, do you know what the goal was? It was to finish in happy old age. So the goal was happiness both ways, but in 1860, it was old age, and the board, the, the board at, at old age was 50. I don't know if that hurts anybody's feelings, but, but, um, but a happy old age, and then uh, 50 points for it. Hopefully, that's what it meant, and, 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 and then now, it's how much money, and it's all determined, like many games are, by the spin of the wheel or the roll of the dice, you know, in our own lives, we have to make decisions. Will we build our life off of chance, off of opinions, off of guesses, off of what so-and-so's article said? Or will we have another basis for how we make decisions? And in today's message, People come to attack Jesus and to try to catch Jesus into either appealing to man's opinions, positions, even authorities, or what his truth was. And so we're going to see people coming to him about life. That's really what it was all about. And you'll find in Jesus' mind... If the sole pursuit of life is this happiness of wealth, stashing, collecting, and all those things, not saying any of these things are bad in themselves, but if that's the goal of your life, and if that's where you build your identity from and what you call a win, you will see that it's a trap. And so today's message we're going to call, it's a trap. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. And we're gonna see them lay three traps for Jesus. And they think they're gonna catch him off guard and catch him in front of a microphone, if you will, and he will stutter through and not have the answer. How do you think Jesus is gonna do? He does pretty well. Would you join me as we study this text together? Because every game of life has rules, has goals, and has an end game. But we will see it's not so much a game. It's the reality of life. And who will we leave our lives up to? Heavenly Father, use the text today to inspire us to live lives 
that are dedicated to you, lives that are built on your truth, and lives that pursue things correctly with the correct mindset. May we grow into people who seek to do what the one who gave us life desired for us to do. May we listen to his authority. May we move through life according to his plan. And may we respond to the difficult things as well as the positive things with the right perspective. For we all have this life. We all have one go. And we need to make sure that whatever we're standing on is not simply the roll of the dice, but part of what the author of our lives would want for us. And so, Lord, if it be your will, would you remove the room from all distraction that we might focus on your word today? Lord, would you humble our hearts that we might receive it and not just be hearers, but doers as well? And then, Lord, if it be your will, may we leave very differently here today. For we sat under your sacred text. We renewed our minds. And, be a, and, and I just pray for, for blessing for those who just chose to make it a priority today to sit under the word of God this morning. And so, Lord, protect this time we have together. Use it for your glory and your fame, Lord. In Jesus' name. And all renewed Bible said, amen. Men. So, who were the three trappers, if you will? We had Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. And they each come and they seek to attack Jesus for different things. And they want to challenge him on three different subjects. And so I want you to watch for what the Pharisees were going for, what, what the Sadducees had plans for, and the scribes had plans for. So let's start with the Pharisees. I know this week you were probably driving in your car talking to your kids or your husband or wife about Pharisees. I'm sure that was some, something you talked about. And, and I'm sure you were like diving into what they were all about. Well, Pharisees were rule makers in the religious leader realm where they followed the traditions of what God had given in Scripture, but on top of that, they were an authority figure that would even add their own guidelines and rules. And so the Pharisees come first, and you might say, Chris, how do you know they were trying to trap him? Well, let's read the opening statement and see um, where I got this from. And they sent him, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. Okay, so we don't have to guess. Sometimes scripture makes it easy. And they came to him. Now, now I, I know you were also probably you know, pouring your coffee this morning going, sweetheart, you know, I was thinking, who are the Herodians? I know you were probably talking about that too. So, so who are these Herodians, right? We hear these, these phrases, Pharisees and Herodians. And, and, and who are the Herodians? Well, the Herodians were Herod supporters. Does that make sense? Ians, right? Herod. Ians, right? So the Herodians were, were more pro-Rome and specifically the area of politics and taxes and things like that, where the Pharisees were more like, no way, no way, we're not doing that. We're not submitting to that. And so they had their own internal arguments going on, but they came together because Jesus was a threat to both of their authorities. And so they come to him and they say this, teacher, 
We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, now how many of you are going, mm, red flag, red flag. Or maybe you're just going off my voice inflection. The way I said it, you're going, oh, that sounded sarcastic the way you read that. Have you ever heard of a rule of marketing where you flatter the person you're trying to sell? Man, that is some kind of outfit. Well, I was thinking. <laughs> a guy like you could never drive anything but. Now, I know, right? Uh, or, oh, my word, if you were the, me, I, I mean, if I were you, I, I'd have to be in this house. What? I know. That's what I was thinking, too. I mean, I know you probably have the money for it. Not everybody does. Flattery is an incredible technique, especially if you want to set the person's expectation to not let themselves down. Like, I can't, this guy thinks pretty highly of me. I got to ball out. I got to make some good decisions here. And they're going, Jesus, we know. Oh, man, we know you're good. We've been listening to you. You're not swayed. You don't care what anybody thinks. And they begin to entrap him. What are they asking? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Oh, they're going political. Let's see if we can get Jesus in a little bit of a political trap. Why? For the Pharisees would be like, no, Rome is evil. We can't be doing this. There, there were probably zealots in the crowd who refused, and they would defy all government taxes. They would not do anything like that. And then there'd be some in the crowd, like the Herodians would be like, listen, we live off the enmities. It's their currency, and we enjoy collecting their currency, so um, let's live by the rules of the currency. You've got different political opinions on this poll tax, if you will. That's what it was called at that time period. What's well, a poll tax? Well, you could kind of replace poll tax with head tax. In fact, the Romans would be charging the Jews per head um, taxes once a year that they would pay, and it'd have to be in Roman coinage, and if Jesus says, you need to pay your tax to Caesar, certainly he wouldn't sanction foreign authority over the Jewish people. He would never. Or defy, don't, don't do it. He would never publicly acute, uh, oppose Rome. Oh man, the ramifications of Jesus publicly opposing. So what's he gonna do? He finds himself trapped. Nowhere out. Jesus is cornered. He has no hope, right? Let's see what he says. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Huh? He knew what they were doing. They must have been like, how does he know we were tricking him? Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. That's interesting. For all, for all the prosperity gospel pulpits out there, Jesus didn't even have a coin on him, right? You know, you're only blessed if you have a lot of wealth. He didn't even have a coin. He's like, has anybody got a coin? Now, I got a little bit of a Roman collection of coins. Why not, right? I mean, everybody has that. And um, in it is a denarius. Let me find it. Let me see. Here it is, right? And um, there's an image on it, just like the one Jesus would have gotten. And the image is what Jesus wants to point out. And look what he says. Uh, whose likeness and inscription is this? You can almost picture him. Who, who, who's that? Some are going, 
Caesar. Thinks he's a god. He's a cultic deity. I would never use that coin in my life. Caesar. This is the one who mints his image on a coin to demand authority over us. I will never use that coin. Then others are, that's Caesar. I mean, he's the leader right now. Whether you like him or not, that's the leader. And um, he is an authority over us and he's asking for a tax. We should do it. So he's got two audiences in front of him and he holds up the coin and he says, whose image is on the front? And they say, Caesar's. And Jesus goes, well then, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Why? Because instead of a response like, well, either or, uh, or, oh, well, both and are kind of true, Jesus goes right through something that all of his critics could agree with, and he says something very different. He cuts to the heart of their question. Their question isn't whether they should pay taxes or not. They don't really fully care what Jesus' opinion is on that. They have a problem with what? They have a problem with authority. That's what they're struggling with. I don't want to submit to this authority. I don't trust it. I don't like it. I didn't vote for it. I didn't put it in its position over me. And so I will defy it. And then the other side, hey, that's the authority. We support it. And those things that we're asked to do, if we live in the enmities that this thing coin provides, we should do what it says to do. And so Jesus knows that they're having an authority issue and he cuts right to a th point where one commentator says, it's as if Jesus said, if the coin with the image of Caesar belongs to Caesar, Jesus reasoned, the person made in its image or the person made in the image of God then belongs to God. So give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God. Those who are under my image or have said they belong to me, specifically speaking the Jews here in this scenario, well, they belong to God. And in doing so, he answers their question of authority. Listen, if you're under this authority, do what it asks you to do. If you're under my authority, do what you, I ask you to do. And the crowd just stops because they're expecting Jesus to hem and haul. But he's very clear and he knows the heart of their issue. Does anybody in the crowd, do you struggle with authority figures? Do you know that if that's part of your personality that you just have always, has everybody been a stupid boss you've worked for? Every single person? Has every parent, right, or teacher or coach, they're all stupid. Everybody's dumb. Nobody knows what they're doing. Have, have you ever had enough honesty with yourself to say, you know what? I struggle with authority, especially authority I don't respect, I don't trust, 
I didn't want to be under all those things. This is the subject of the day. And Jesus says, look, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God's what's God's. And as he's talking about that, the Sadducees come walking up. You go, wait, I'm not ready to turn the page. And the Sadducees come walking into the subject. And some of you are like, yeah, yeah, my, I went, went, my, went for a walk with my boyfriend last week. We were talking about the Sadducees. No, no, like what, who are the Sadducees, right? The Sadducees, they were, they were very little different. They were influential elite people. I mean, these were like kind of like people that everybody kind of wanted to be like. And, and they had their own belief systems and they were known for being quite enlightened, they believed in themselves. And they only, only followed the scripture that they held to. It was as if they had a version they liked and all other versions are stupid and these versions aren't peep things that we can be a part of. It's this version of scripture. What, 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 what version was theirs? It was the Pentateuch. Does anybody, does anybody know what the Pentateuch was? Think Pentagon. Now, now you go, go, how many would it be then? Some of you are working on this. Okay, five, okay? Five, Penta, right? Okay, so five. So the Pentateuch was five books. Anybody want to guess what those books were? The first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You just made it through your first class at Bible college right there. Okay, so, so the Pentateuch, right? This is all they held to. So it had to come out of that. They were Moses guys, all right? And they leaned into that. And so because they only leveraged the Pentateuch, they had built a belief system that did not believe in the resurrection, did not believe in this afterlife that people are talking about. They, they didn't believe in angels. No, 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 no. And, and, and they didn't believe in any sort of bodily resurrection. And they come up to the Sadducees come, and Scripture says this. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Here it is. Teacher, Moses, we know why they leveraged Moses, wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. What are they referring to? Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, which would be in the Pentateuch, if a husband dies childless, the next brother in line is to marry that guy's wife to carry and propagate the line. Teenagers, are you glad Jesus came? Are you glad Jesus came? Oh my goodness, that's gross, that's weird. Okay, all these things. So, so this was part of some of their laws, okay? So they're leveraging this and they're going, Jesus, let's say this happens. Now, I want you to remember the context. They don't believe in an afterlife and this resurrection and stuff. So they come up with a scenario. Wait till you hear this, this is great. So there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And then the third, likewise. And then the seven left, no offspring. Wait, what's going on? Are any of you like, what's this lady doing to all these guys? I mean, I'm reading this like, this is not right. The point is, they're exasperating this illustration because Jesus, there's no way he's gonna be able to handle this. Last of all, the woman died, and they say this. 
in the resurrection, when they say rise again, whose wife will she be? <laughs> For the seven had her as a wife. Now, some of the Sadducees are probably like, oh, yeah. He probably came back after. For the seven has a wife. He probably came back like, let's go. We got him. All right. And then they turn around and Jesus is sitting there going, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. Right. But he knows it's a trap. For he knows their question is about the resurrection. And he already knows they've developed a belief system that they are pushing on other people. That there is no afterlife. There's no bodily resurrection. There's no angelic realm. This stuff is ridiculous. Jesus knew that they were pushing this enlightened opinion on other people. And Jesus says to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God? I can't imagine the response. But these Sadducees, these religious elite, these, these people who believe they were smarter than everyone else, Jesus just goes, you don't even know the scripture. They were the ones, if anybody knew the scripture, we were in a predominantly illiterate society at that point. If anyone knew the scripture, it was the Sadducees. Can you imagine them going, can you just believe? He just told Theophilus that he don't know the scripture. Oh, it's going to get rowdy in here. Jesus goes, you don't even know the scripture nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. What? What? Some of you are like, what? I'm not going to be married in heaven. Some of you are like, sweet. No, 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 you're not thinking. That. Like, what, what, what is that? What's going on here? And, and I wouldn't ask you to build an entire theology of heaven out of this, but I will assure you this, just in case I lose you for the rest of the message, you're never gonna be in heaven going, this stinks, okay? Never, never, okay? What Jesus is saying here is, look, after this resurrection from the dead, if you will, that they're referring to, they're neither gonna marry nor are given to marriage. They won't be called to propagate like this woman who was told this. You remember, Jesus is about to abolish much of the law by his death on the cross and for his fulfillment of it in the next couple days. He goes, but they'll be like the angels. In other words, there won't be marriage. There won't be propagating like the angels don't. It will be similar. It's not saying that you won't know who your husband or wife is while you are on earth. It's not saying that at all. It's not saying like all our relationships will be broke down. In fact, they'll be better than they've ever been. The reality is this is the truth of the future and you have no idea what I'm capable of because I'm gonna be giving them glorified bodies, which they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. And that's why he says, and as for the dead, being raised. Have you not read in the book of Moses? There were supposed to be authorities on the book of Moses. And Jesus goes, hey, have you not read your manual, guys? In the passage about the bush, think about how he's talking now. You know the bush? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, how God spoke to him saying, what did he say? What did he say? He said this, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And some of you read that and went, yeah, wait, what? What is he talking about? And I have no clue either. No, no, that's not what I'm not. not. <laughs> I am, present tense, the God of Abraham. 
He is saying this and fulfilling the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob in the context after those men had left earth. What's going on here? Exodus 3.6 is the verse he's referring to. And it teaches clearly that human existence exists after death. I am, present tense, the God of Abraham. In order for a covenant promise to be fulfilled, the two parties had to be alive. And so God is saying, I am currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here's what's cool about this. We say when a child of God goes on to heaven, they died. Jesus is kind of like, they did? That is the part that starts to warm your heart if you've ever lost a loved one in Jesus Christ. Yeah, they died. Jesus is like, they did? It was Billy Graham, I think he said, when they I die, please don't mourn for me. People will say I'm dead, but I've never been more alive. The idea here is Jesus saying, I was giving that, God was giving that promise while Abraham's in glory. And he's saying, they're alive. I see them alive. If you have a loved one in Jesus Christ who knew them as their savior and they're in heaven now, God sees them as alive. You're like, I know they're gone now, but no, he's like, they're alive. They just ran down the Jerusalem street. I watched them. They're fully alive. In fact, they're full of life. They're in my glory. They're with me. I almost wonder, with children of God, should we be referring to them as alive in heaven all the time to remind our hearts that sometimes grieve the loss of others, that they're fully alive in God's eyes, fully alive, because Jesus knows the afterlife. The Sadducees believed that if the material man dies, the whole person ceases to exist. And we live in a society, for the most part, that would agree with the Sadducees. Yeah, we, we spend our life, we go through life. Sometimes the dice lands us on this spot. Sometimes the dice lands us on this spot. Sometimes we go and you land on $5,000, and sometimes we land on jail. It really just is a roll of the dice where Jesus says, I know exactly what happens in the afterlife. The immaterial man The soul, the whole person, lives on after death, and he will rejoin us with a glorified body at the resurrection. And you want to ask Jesus more questions, but the scribes butt in. What? I mean, Jesus is still handling these massive theological questions, and now the scribes come in, and you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, this week at school, at the lunch table, we were talking about the scribes. Who are the scribes? What were the scribes? You might think, "Mm, well, a scribe, it makes sense that they were writing something down, right? Well, they were brilliant, educated studiers of the law, and they transcribed the things of Scripture. They even would write commentary for them to better understand it. And now the scribes come in, and, and Scripture gives a clue about the one scribe that kind of represents them. Matthew speaks of them as a whole, where Mark says there's one that kind of represented him. And scripture says this, and one of the scribes then comes and and he came up and he heard them disputing with one another. So there's discussion going, can you believe, can you believe he said that we don't know 
what Moses said. I know exactly what Moses said. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not using the denarii. I don't care what Jesus says. I'm not using that coin. All sorts of disputants going on. And then the scribe comes walking into the situation and he is seeing that Jesus is getting some really good answers out of his mouth. And so he comes in with his own question and into all this kind of, I can, you can imagine the commotion. He comes up and he says this, um, uh, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And I bet the commotion went from coming, all this talking, all this coming. What did he just ask him? Which commandment's the most important of all? I bet that place went silent. Did he really just ask Jesus that? Which one? Now, at the time of this question being asked of Jesus, which is the greatest commandment. This is a trap in so many ways. For at that time, you want to take a guess how many commandments were on the Jewish people at that time? 613. Some of you are like, I can't remember the 10 commandments. 613. 365 of them negative, 248 of them positive. And on top of that, the Pharisees were adding things routinely and daily to their lives and holding them accountable for it. Do not pick up your mat on the Sabbath. You can't walk three paces. If you pass a mile marker, you have to sit down. I mean, they had all sorts of these regulations. And this scribe goes, which one's the greatest? And Jesus turns to him and says, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What's he doing? He's quoting what the Jewish people would know as the Shema, something they would repeat often throughout the day. They'd wear it on their wrists. They would even have it on their foreheads. And he continues and says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Some scholars have said, it's kind of the idea here is, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your decision making, with all of your soul, your emotions, with all of your mind, your thoughts, and with all of your strength, your actions. Love the Lord your God with all of you. Don't give him some. Don't give him part. Don't love the world and him. Love him completely. And Jesus says this, and the second is this. Whoa, 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 what? You just took 613 and reduced them to two? David, in Psalm 15, reduced them to 11. Micah, in chapter 6, verse 8, reduced them to three. Jesus comes along and goes, I can summarize all of the law this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. What was the trap? What's the purpose of life? What's the purpose? And Jesus says, love God and love others. And scripture says that Jesus turned to this scribe. And the scribe answers him. And it's amazing what he says. You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And there is no others beside him. He continues and says, 
and, and to love him with all of the heart and with all of the understanding and with all of the strength and, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You desire relationship with you vertically and with others horizontally over anything we could bring you in sacrifice. Listen to this scribe. And we, Jesus saw that he answered wisely. He said to them, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're getting this. He, he had Jesus in his head. He knows the scriptures. Jesus says, you're so close to having Jesus in your heart. There's one preacher who says, it's about 12 inches from your head to your heart. Don't miss heaven by a length of a ruler by thinking you're one. Submit to what God's plan is for you, to the one who makes the rules of this game, how it is to be played, and even what the end game is, and you will find the purpose, not in the game of life, but for all of life. See, the Pharisees, they asked a question, but their question really was about authority. The Sadducees asked a question, but their question really was about afterlife. And the Pharisees asked a question, excuse me, the scribes asked a question. And the reality is it was about the purpose of life. Three traps that Jesus handled magnificently. Yet there was only one in the crowd who Jesus said, you're close. You're close. And why was he close? What was it about him that made him close to the kingdom of God or what Jesus is looking for? You know, in elementary school, especially growing up back in the 1900s, teens, I grew up in the 1900s, and um, we would read different books that were required reading and all these different things, okay? And, um, and one of the novels we would read uh, had stories in it, you know, and fifth and sixth grade, you got into the, like more advanced novels and things like this and, and stuff. And, and there was one book that um, I heard a, a preacher leverage an illustration out of it that kind of stuck with me. It was about a boy who had a couple dogs, and uh, he had a grandpa who was teaching him a lesson on life. And uh, the grandpa had a log in front of him, and he said, you want to know how to catch a raccoon? How, grandpa, right? So, so he, he said, I need some nails. And they made a hole in the log, and he took a shiny object, and he placed it in the log. And then he took the nails, and he hid it around the edges. And the idea was this. If the raccoon reaches its hand in and grabs the shiny object that it's so attracted to, when it goes to pull it out, the object won't fit through, and he's trapped. And the boy goes, how is he trapped? All he has to do is let go of the shiny object. And he says, ha do you know the stubbornness of a raccoon? He will not let go of a shiny object once he gets his hands on it. What's the trap? The enemy during this life wants to offer you shiny objects that you will not let go of. And some of those objects don't come in the form of material things at times. Sometimes those shiny objects that we refuse to let go of is authority. Authority. 
I'm the authority of my life. I make the rules. I determine who are the authority figures over my children. I determine who are the authorities that I listen to. I determine who the authorities of that I'll go to class for. I determine the authorities that I'll sign up for their class. I determine the authority in my life, and I only submit to the authorities that I respect and trust. And that's becoming all the more difficult in 2024 to find an authority that you actually trust or can get fully behind. And so we live in this world that gets that shiny object called authority because, I mean, who doesn't want their name on the front of their desk? Who doesn't want a title at the end of their email? Who doesn't want to have something that they believe other people would look to and go, I wish I was them? And sometimes it's a trap. There's nothing wrong with authority when used correctly. But when authority is the goal of life, and your hand goes in and you get some and you go, I got authority and I'm not releasing it no matter what. And therefore we have authority struggles, including rendering what's his Caesar's and God's what's God's. The apostle Paul had to write to the church because they had such a struggle with authority and to remind them how they were to act in accordance to authority, specifically with government. Is there an area of your life where you're being asked to release authority and trust God? Well, well how do I trust God? What do I need to know about authority? Well, well, Paul was pretty clear to the church in Rome. He said, when we honor authority, we honor God's establishment. Romans 13:1 says, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. There's no authority over you that God hasn't allowed, even ones as horrible as Nero that Peter had to write into. And so if there's an authority figure over your life that you can't really do anything about, those exist, are established by God. Paul says, hey, when we resist authority, we oppose God's ordinance. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed have received condemnation upon themselves. Paul goes on to tell the church in Rome, when we obey authority, we avoid the fear of authority. I'm just afraid that if I, if I, if I go and I, 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 I rob my neighbor's house, that the, the authority's gonna come and do something bad to me. Well, well, then don't go rob your neighbor's house. Oh, See, that's an option. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good. When we submit to authority, we avoid the guilt of defiance, Romans 13, 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of your own conscience. Peter says, in accordance to authority, watch out, because it can be a trap when you get authority or an authority comes over you, you don't like. Peter was writing in the time of Nero. You, you submit to that authority for the Lord's sake, for your testimony's sake, for the mission's sake. Being a youth pastor, I would have opportunities to speak into young people's lives and they would have authority figures in their life. And at that time, you always assume it's the authority figure's fault. You had nothing to do with it. The fact that you didn't pay attention in class or, or spoke back or, or were an, an, had a showed an attitude, there's ramifications for behavior, okay? But sometimes you're under an authority figure and you can't stand them. 
Somebody's like, did Pastor Chris come to church with us this morning in our car? And you can't respect them. And you can't submit to them with all that's in your body. I mean, it is just like, no way. And it's difficult because we live in a society where there's very few good leaders, whether it be at your school, in your class, whether it be in your church, whether it be as a boss. And when we get under those authorities, it can be so difficult. And you've been grilled in your head the American dream of I make the rules, I do it my way. And then God allows an authority figure in your life and it's destroying you and it's wrecking you. Somebody's gotta do something about it. And look, if you have an opportunity to get out from under that, op- that leadership, it might be wise to do so in the correct way, with the correct timing, without gossip, and in a proper attitude. But there's sometimes you can't get out from under it. So are you gonna allow it to ruin every part of your life I don't have a choice. Yes, you do. If all authority has been given by God, he might be using that authority, even the difficult authorities in your life. I remember my dad saying, hey, maybe God put you under that leader to show you what not to do if you're ever a leader. And he wants you to learn this right now. Maybe this leader is kind of taking some things off of you that needed to get dealt with that nobody else would. Yeah, but they're doing it the wrong way. He understand that. So what do you do? You play leapfrog. What What leapfrog? You leapfrog that leadership. What do you mean? If God's the ultimate authority and he has allowed all authority to be put in place, that means there's really no authority figure in your life that hasn't gone through God. That's what scripture's telling us. And so you submit to that authority out of your reverence for Christ. And that's why scripture says, do it for the Lord, not for man. If you're going through a difficult situation in your life where the man or the woman or whoever's in charge of you is just being so, hey, serve for the Lord. Leapfrog that. I'm not doing it for them. My attitude isn't going to be about them. I'm doing it for Christ. And you turn what the enemy wants to do is destroy you. And you turn it for good by leveraging it as an opportunity to serve Christ. It's a trap to hang on to authority when all authority is God's. And if he's allowed it, I've got to trust that he will use it. The second was the future. What's the future of my life? Have I released the future of my life to God or am I holding on to it? This is the future I want. And it's a shiny thing and I want want it. It's like God's saying, that's not the future I have for you, but that's the future I want and any other future is bad. I want that one. And for some, they're holding on to opinions about the future and not the truth of scripture. Do you really want to trust your afterlife to a blog post? Do you really want to trust your afterlife to my dad always said? Do you really want to trust your laughter life to what that guy down the street said, even if it was in a church? Do you really want to trust your life to that? For there's a lot of things that write what we should do, but I would argue most of them, if not all of them, are a roll of the dice. Scripture has stood the test of the ages. There have been many transcripts written from different books, none as many as Scripture. And people are willing to die for this book. That deserves some investigation. Nobody wants to die for Moby Dick. 
Emperors don't demand a burning in the streets of To Kill a Mockingbird. What is it about this book? And on top of that, what book offers so much life change where you see people go from one direction to another? Do you really want to spend your one go on life making sure you refuse this or are you possibly holding on to something that's a trap? And this could be the truth. I remember listening to one person say, look, you may not believe scripture. And if you're right and there's nothing after this, well, then we're both in the same boat. But what if you're wrong and I am right? Then you're in a very, very dangerous place. Is it worth investigating the truth of scripture? Or do you really just want to roll the die on my professor said? It's worth the investigation because the future is so exciting. Jesus says you're going to be resurrected. Not only you'll live forever, your soul, if you're a child of God, but you'll be reunited with a glorified body. Well, I wish I knew what my glorified body was like so I could get excited about heaven. Oh man, the scripture tells you a little bit by watching Jesus. We have physical glorified bodies. Luke 24, touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bone. We have recognizable. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? They said, there's Moses, there's Elijah. We were recognizable. I mean, we're not gonna be like, I don't know who that guy is. You'll say, there's Chris. I might have some extra flowing hair. I think that's a part of the, but, but they say, there's nourishable glorified. They eat, oh, praise God, they eat. Unrestrained glorified, the doors were locked and Jesus came and stood. I mean, who knows all the things? You know, the major city in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles wide. That's Philadelphia to Denver is just the city. Look at a city on a map. And look at what one dot looks like on the entire earth. Scripture says it'll be a new heavens, a new earth. You know what an earth is, but it'll be removed of the curse. And it's huge and it's massive. We'll have relational glorified bodies. Jesus said, peace be with you. They have relationships and we have internal glorified bodies with no more evil, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. All oh, the no mores of Revelation 21 are worth a devotional study in themselves. Jesus offers so much hope for the future of your life. Are you willing to release any preconceived notion like a shiny toy that's actually a trap to get you from going where he wants you to go? And then finally, the purpose of our life. Have I released the purpose of my life to God? Why I live, why I'm here. If you're newer to the Renew family, we have built a lot of the Renew vision out of this verse in Mark. In fact, let me show you. With all of your heart, Psalm 51, create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. These are our four renew verses. With all your soul, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. With all your mind, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And with all your strength, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Love the Lord your God with all of you. And the second command is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 
Love your neighbor. And that's the heartbeat behind our revival's mission. It's to fulfill what Jesus gave us. Love me with all you got. Heart, mind, soul, and body. And love your neighbor. And we've tried to build that out of our philosophy of ministry. It's not logos and brands. It's scripture about what the real authority is in our life, about where we're all going if we call in the name of the Lord, and about what our purpose is while we're here. Jesus says, for who would ever save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul. Where will you spend the rest of eternity? You have one life to determine that. And Jesus gave his life so that you could be with him forever. Heavenly Father, as we bow our heads and close our eyes, if there's anyone in here today who would like to give all authority all purpose and all hope of a future to their life by giving their life to you. May they remember this. There is zero profit to gaining the whole world and forfeiting their soul. But how do they give their life to you? You make it so clear that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and believe that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe even here today, there is someone that is in need of a renewal. There's someone who has been putting their life up to chance and now sees that there's actually a sovereign creator, an owner who has made the rules, who is given how to play, and who promises an incredible endgame for all those who cast their lot with him. We pray that even today, there's someone listening or in the house who says, enough of leaving my life up to chance. Jesus, you have it all. I wanna follow after you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.